This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 302nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is one of the great auteurs of international cinema. A writer and director who, over the last 40 years, has pumped out 21 feature films, including classics like 1982's Labyrinth of Passion, 1986's Matador, 1988's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, which was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar, 1990's Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, 1999's All About My Mother, which won the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar, 2002's Talk to Her, for which he was nominated for the Best Director Oscar and won the Best Original Screenplay Oscar, marking only the fifth time that a non-English language script had been awarded an Oscar, 2004's Bad Education, 2006's Volver, and 2011's The Skin I Live In. The most famous Spanish filmmaker since Benuel, Pedro Almodovar. Over the course of our conversation at the Whitby Hotel in New York, not far from where Almodovar's latest film, Pain and Glory, is now screening at the New York Film Festival, the 70-year-old and I discussed, at times with the help of his translator, Carlo Marcantonio, the revolutionary period in Spain from which he and his equally colorful films emerged, why he has written more parts for actresses than actors and always gravitated towards stories about identity, many of them quite controversial, why, even after he became internationally famous, he opted not to make a film by Almodovar, as his are introduced, in Hollywood, but rather always on a small scale in Spain and in partnership with his brother, Augustin. Why Pain and Glory, which stars his longtime muses Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz, which premiered at May's Cannes Film Festival and which Sony Classics released in theaters on October 4th, is his most personal film yet, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Mr. Almodovar, thank you so much for doing this. Great to have you. We always begin with just a few basics on this podcast. Where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in La Mancha, in a rural place, in 1949. You know, at the moment, my mother just uh, made the homework mm -hmm. I mean, she was just a housewife, mm -hmm. and it was enough at that moment because she has a lot of things to do. Mm -hmm. My father was, um, I mean, the work, it was the 50s, mm -hmm. but it was something like um, like in the in 19th century. Uh, he brought the wine that my grandfather produced and took it with animals to the region close to La Mancha, which is Andalusia. That works it's called in Spain arriero. Oh. I don't know, but because this is so old. <laughs> because even for Spain, I mean, of course, at that moment, uh, the cars existed. So it was, I mean, completely anachronic um, <laughs> and very poor yeah, just yeah. To, to, to drive by Sierra Morena uh, to go to Jaén with the animals and just driving the wine. So I think he was the last 
arriero in La Mancha. Ah. And after that, we went in the 1959, when I was 10, we migrated to another region. Uh -huh. And there, I mean, my mother still was a wonderful housewife, and my father started working in one gas station. Uh -huh. So I used to go very often. Curiously, I never saw any image of that because that was very, uh, very interesting. That 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 I sometimes I help him serving gases yeah. in the station, and um, you know that moment is represented in in pain and glory when the family goes to other region in Spain, Valencia, one of little place when they have to live in a cave. Yes. I mean, I didn't live in a cave, <laughs> but um, when we move up from La Mancha yeah. to Extremadura, it was in a very precarious way, you know. I mean, Spain was, uh, at that moment, living a dark period of post-war, and the families used to go to another places to, yes, for fine providence and work. So usually they go to Germany, to Catalonia, many of them to France, and we went to another region that it was much more future for yeah. us. Well, I think it's important that people understand, maybe people from outside of Spain understand the political situation that you came up in, because I think yep. it's clearly shaped you and your work. So for people who don't really know after Franco's death, La Movida, what that was all about, can you just explain a little bit about all these sudden and big changes that were happening around you as you were forming yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I mean, um, I was, and also the three male characters of Pain and Glory, they were shaped in that decade of the 80s. Uh, Franco died in 1975, but the democracy, the real democracy, uh, started in 1977. Everything changed at that moment. And it was a big explosion of freedom in every sense. You know, Suddenly, from one day to another, the Spanish people, we just lost fear. And it, it happens like that, uh, from, I mean, so sudden. And for the first time, we could see a policeman without having fear. That was the opposite feeling. And I am the result of that new democracy. I mean, the movies that I did, they were completely impossible, or uh, I will finish in jail if I, if I yeah. dare to do to do any of them before this moment. And the result of the culture, the young culture in Madrid and in the big cities, it was what the journalists called La Movida, mm -hmm. the movement, and uh, represents about all, you know, that explosion of freedom. That explosion of freedom was not reflected in all of the artistic endeavors. But more in the things that you could do very quickly and with very little money. So there's therefore not many movies that represent that moment, except perhaps my two early films. And I made them because they were without money. They're literally zero-budget films. But they talk about the atmosphere that you really could breathe in the streets. And these were 8 millimeter early, early. A lot of eight millimeter movies. And I think another way that it was reflected was in our way of thinking and in the in the impositions that the young people adopted during that time. And also in the music. I think the best legacy of that period, you can find it in hundreds of songs because it was very easy and very, very fast and with a small investment to make 
to make a record. Yeah. So the Tons of music groups flourished during that era, which I think is one of the greatest legacies that we have from that era, but there were also uh, a lot of painters and a lot of illustrators. And I think what really sort of inhabits in us is that sense of freedom, a kind of eclecticism, and something that uh, at some point was called postmodernism as well. So you were not necessarily exclusively interested in film at the beginning. I know that you were doing a lot of artistic things, some acting, some designing, how did film and the idea of even making 8mm films emerge? Why do you think that was what you gravitated towards? Well, you know, when I, when I arrived in, in, to Madrid, that it was 1970, I thought it, I, I, it was in my mind just the idea of uh, become a director. Of course, it was very difficult because the, the school of cinematographia, it was closed by Franco. And they were not any kind of academy just to learn. So when I start, but my first idea always it was to be a storyteller. At the beginning, I wrote the stories, and I thought that perhaps the literature will be my my business. But immediately, I perceived that I had more talent if I have one uh-huh. for images and words. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I start making these many Super 8 millimeter movies during the whole 70s. Where did you even get a camera? Where hmm? did the camera come from? The camera came from the first salaries because I was working at the moment Mm -hmm. in a place that it was not modern at all. Uh, It was the telephone company. (laughs) And it was a company from the state. And I was working as office assistant Mm -hmm. from uh, 8 to 3 in the afternoon. And with that first salaries for, of the first years, I could buy the camera and something to edit mm-hmm. um, very poorly. But anyway, you know, it was cinema. It was very different from video because uh, you have to develop. Uh, there was a negative film. And it contained all the, if you like, rudimentary aspects of a film. Uh And really, this was my only school. And I was young, of course, so I was meddling in all different kinds of things. For example, I had a punk rock band. Uh, I wrote uh, for different kinds of publications, mostly underground uh, publications. Uh, I wrote short stories, right? I had the energy to sort of be able to want to tell many stories. I wanted to ask you about one other thing that maybe during your life would have been very different in another way, which is that just sexuality, being able to acknowledge who you are and what you're interested in, how different do you think your life would have been? And was it still difficult, even post-Franco, in a very Catholic society? So I think once you experience liberty, liberty is really up to yourself. The country was still a Catholic country. So it it took five years until 1984 before the socialists arrived in power and actually proclaimed Spain a secular country. And the truth is, though, that families continue to be Catholic, and even today the Catholic Church continues to have a lot of power in Spain. In the beginning, in the 80s, even though I did very scandalous things, there was never really any backlash towards me, even though people didn't really agree with what I was doing. So I think that what had happened is that the conservative wing had sort of recoiled in fear. Fear had sort of switched places, and they were just, you know, shut away and very afraid to say what they were actually thinking. For example, when I made a film like Dark Habits, where I have a film about nuns, 
who are helping women who are women from the streets and they're even shooting up uh, heroin or doing drugs themselves. Uh, I think this particular class was too afraid to speak out because they weren't really sure in what direction the country was going to be going. And you can't say the same thing today because, of course, that same class of people now have found a voice. Uh, they don't have a huge representation in the parliament, but they do have that. They're part of an ultra-conservative party called Vox. And a lot of people tell me this, and I actually agree with it, that nowadays, if I had made a film like Dark Habits, I would actually be getting a lot more resistance than I did back then. How about on a personal level, though? Was there ever a time in your life when you did not feel that you could be completely open about everything? Everything. You never had to keep anything a secret. No, and the, no, and I never had to even confess anything because I always lived my life very openly, very clearly. And since the 70s, really, I acted completely naturally towards my sexuality, my own sexuality, and I never had any reaction against it. And it's a way in which you sort of take charge of your own liberty. Like, for example, I lived amongst a circle of people in which I was not judged. Of course, that, mean, that did not mean that there weren't other circles where I would have been, but I just didn't have anything to do with them. So after Franco's report, I one of the things that I did is that I never repressed myself. So when I speak about freedom and the freedom that you grant yourself, it's about the fact that you don't really sort of stop yourself. You don't care what other people are going to think. You just live your life as you're going to live it. So from 71 to 82 is when you're at the telephone company. Yes. And uh, I just think it's amazing if you can explain to people how it worked that you were able to have that job, but also go and make your earliest movies. They were what we would call leaves of absence, right? Leave, leave? Leaves when you would basically unpaid, yeah. <laughs> take time away, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, I made the first two movies I did then during the telephone company period. Yes. And I wrote them there in the office. <laughs> when I finished my work, I, you know, secret, secretly, <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote the script and then, you know, I remember one of them, the first one, that it was very, very, very light, very underground and very outrageous. There was a song, very dirty. <laughs> uh, it was very punk and also it was very, very dirty. When I wrote the lyrics, I used to read to my fellows there, <laughs> my companion, read what I was writing. And they were laughing, laughing, because it was something, you know, something very punk. Um, like uh, six months later, or more, one year later, they could see that that song that I read, the lyrics, the outrageous lyrics, that can be seen in one movie, that it was in a theater, mm -hmm. they were like, oh my God. I mean, they couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, I mean, the genesis of that script was there in front of them, and they thought that, what I said, it was a joke. <laughs> uh, so they were very impressed yeah. about that because I could combine, you know, I mean, I could combine in a very precarious way because the first movie that I did, it took me one year and a half to shoot because we used to shoot during the weekends and uh, with a kind of crowdfunding. Yes. I mean, many people gave us, I mean, $10, $50, I mean, among many, many friends. And also, we had the money to buy the negative. Yes. And uh, But everybody came like it was a party. But nobody thought, really, that it became a movie that released one day. So this, I think that was the only one with that kind of faith. Was this, this was 
Peppy Lucy. Peppy Lucy Bond. Bon. Si. And actually, just to connect it to Pain and Glory, the woman who plays your mother in Pain and Glory was in that, right? Yes. Uh, yes, it was there. Julieta Serrano. Julieta yeah. Serrano, a right, great right. actress. Yeah. It was incredible that she worked in this movie because at that moment, there were only two professional actresses. It was Carmen Maura, yeah. that also yeah. uh, was very famous in theater, and she started at that moment making movies. And Julieta, that Julieta was a great actress in cinema and theater. Mm-hmm. But she sees even now so modern that uh, I could ask her to do this, and she was enchanted to do it. Yeah. But yes, Julieta was since the very beginning. Yes. <laughs> and so the, the thing, though, that I think is important to emphasize is that even though this movie that you were talking about as a song comes a movie, goes to theaters, you then go back to work at the telephone company. Oh, yeah. It wasn't until 1982, and I guess Labyrinth of Passion, that you were able to leave for good, right? Yes, yes. I, I mean, I remember that I went to the cities in Spain just to, to open the movie mm-hmm. and to be like in a hotel, but it was <laughs> unusual for me. But uh, the Monday, I have to go to the place that I was working. Yeah. So it, I felt at the moment, even even it was very, I mean, uh, not in the dimension that I'm living now, yeah. but it was a kind of double life. Yeah, yeah. Because for me, just to be in a hotel in Segovia, in Toledo, or in, in Sevilla, it was like, my God, this is really something. <laughs> and there was, you know, I had to go back to um, to the office. And uh, I wrote the, the entire the entire the script of Labyrinth of Passion mm-hmm. in the telephone company office. And what I did, it was not because the experience of being like a year and a half shooting, it was very exhausting. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have money and we couldn't, but it, it was a way to do it, but it was... Oh, <laughs> you, 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 I mean, I was thinking that I could never finish the movie. So we got little money, I mean, enough to make something more professional. So I asked what we call in Spain, un permiso sin sueldo. A leave of absence. Yes, yes. Of three months. Yeah. And in those three months, months I prepared the film and I shot it. And then after that, because I had to premiere the film, I asked for another three months of a leave of absence. And things started going well after that, so I never went back to the telephone company, and that would have been about 1982. I do want to ask one other thing about Labyrinth of Passion, because I believe that was the first of now seven times that you've worked with Antonio Banderas. And so how did you two first cross paths for it to connect from 1982 through 2019 with Pain and Glory. That's obviously something really clicked with you two. Yeah, I mean, Antonio came to Madrid. He has arrived to Madrid several months before shooting. And uh, I met him in a place very popular in Madrid, Café Gijón. The only experience is that he belonged to a small group in the province, in Malaga. Of this, mm, the teatro, pero mm-hmm. teatro... Mm-hmm. Amateur. Amateur, amateur mm-hmm. completamente mm-hmm. amateur, sí. And that was the first time that he was in front of a camera. And you know, you believe me that um, since the beginning, I thought that I found in Antonio a natural-born actor. Um, the way he walked, the way he looked at the camera, the way he behaved with the other actors. He was really born uh, to do this. And I was completely sure that he would be a great actor and could be, I mean, just work in many places, not only in Spain. I believe that since the beginning. 
And, uh, well, many things happened since that, 82 till now. Yes. Um, we continue working together during the whole decade yeah. of the 80s. And um, at the end of the 80s, when Time Me Up, Time Me Down, yes. everybody knows. Yes. I mean, many, many, many wonderful directors, American directors, they pay attention to him. Yes. And they were fascinated by him. And uh, immediately they they start asking him to be here and yeah. to, to learn English immediately and to start uh, doing a career here. Yeah. And that was unique, you know, for one Spanish actor. Yes. Because, I mean, we have some exception. For example, Fernando Rey mm -hmm. was in Fresh Connection mm -hmm. uh, with William Fredkin. But that because, I mean, I think Fernando was known here because he used to work with Buñuel. But... He never came again, and right. he didn't have a career here. Right. I mean, he has a career in France, but nothing else. So it was, I mean, the first time that one Spanish actor is demanded yeah. fiercely by Hollywood to make so many movies. Yes. So it was incredible. Well, the, the movie that it seems like maybe most changed your life, sort of put you on the map internationally, was, of course, Women on the Verge yeah. of a Nervous Breakdown. This yes. came out in 87. But I wanted to ask you about that because I had read one very old interview. This was Los Angeles Times, I think right around that time, where you were saying the idea came to you, the idea for Women on the Verge came to you at a time when you were very depressed, very low. I mean, the way they described it, and I don't know if it's being hyperbolic, but they said you I were said that. sitting on a ledge. I'm always, I'm always talking too much. It's true. <laughs> well, so what was, was it literally sitting on a ledge? That's the way they described that you were that down in the dumps, as we say, or what was, what was going on? Yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> I know I, I it was true. So I, I said that, you know, I sometimes I'm, um, I'm surprising myself because I think I talk too much. <laughs> I talk to you. I mean. No, but it, it was true. You know, it was a period, a dark period for me when I had problems, sentimental problems with a guy that I that I was uh, engaged and in, in love and uh, that we have a lot of problems. And uh, what I remember is that when I just... What I remember is that every time I arrived home, I would look sort of in the distance down the hallway to the answering machine. And if the red light was blinking, it meant that he had called and left a message. But if it wasn't, it meant that he had not called and it had been hours that had been away. But I didn't think I had said that in any interview. So that was really the origin. And after I mixed this with, uh, at that moment, I finished working with uh, Carmen Maura in Low Desire. And I felt completely, how can I say, I was so impressed in the way that he understood me without telling anything. We have a kind of relationship that it was a deep link between the two of us that I got the feeling that I could, that I could do with Carmen, whatever, mm -hmm. everything. I mean, as a director, as an actress. Yeah. So this is the first time that I wrote thinking about her, then I mixed the telephone things with <laughs> with the light and all, and all that, right. and that I destroyed many times in the movie, <laughs> with the idea of making with her the Jean Cocteau, uh, La Voz Humana, the human voice. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was it's a monologue about a female character that that is doing the baggage for the lover because the lover is abandoning her. And uh, she never, she never meet him, 
I mean, in my case, I use the telephone answer machine because he only leave message there, but he didn't, he never came yes. to, to just to, to talk to her or to meet her or so. I mean, that was the idea, to make like a long adaptation of Cocteau's mix with telephone, which is always, I mean, a lugar de... The place, actually, the originating point for that very human voice that the play talks about. Pero en el momento en que so in the case of Peppa, the way that this sort of transfers over onto Peppa's life is that uh, she doesn't want to be in that apartment anymore. So she puts it up for rent. And what ends up happening is that once she opens the door and all these strange people start coming in, they all have their own problems. And she begins to try to actually solve their problems. And she gets involved in their lives. And at that point, uh, Cocteau's human voice also sort of goes out the window right. and she gets involved in, right. in the life it of others. The origin, but sometimes, you know, the things happens like that, that, you know, you part for something with one idea and the idea takes you for one way and sometimes the original idea disappears. Yeah. And what is important is just the road you walk, uh, trying uh, to th thinking about that idea. Yes. Well, so I believe that that movie premiered at the New York Film Festival. Yes. That was exactly 31 years ago because we're here, you're here at the yes. New York Film Festival again with Pain and Glory. What changed and what didn't change as a result of that movie? I think that suddenly you were in, you were much more well-known, you were in more demand, but you, it seems like, made a conscious decision, I'm not going to go to Hollywood, I'm not going to start working with bigger budgets, I'm not going to do things differently, I'm going to work with my brother as my producer and have my production company and do things the way I I have always done them. Why do you think you made that decision when you could have gone in a very different direction? It's true that I did exactly what you just described. So it is true. So this happens about 1988. And that was when I became to receive all these offers uh, from Hollywood, including making a remake of Women on the Verge. But at that point, thankfully, I was a little bit over my 30s. I was in my 30s. I was older. I was more mature. And I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew what my ambition for making movies was going to be. And I knew that I wanted to retain my own vision and my own style and my own way of working. And it's true that I, I had at that point made seven films, and then we created this this production company in 1986 is when we founded El Deseo, mm -hmm. and I continued to make the kinds of films that I wanted, and I'm very happy about the choice mm -hmm. uh, that I make because I'm sure I would have made fine films and I would have been able to return to Spain, but I would not have been able to remain quite as true to my vision as mm -hmm. I have been able to. Esto tampoco quiere decir nada and this is nothing against Hollywood, yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously. Sino que... And so, for example, I would come and I would meet with people, and I met people such as, in one specific case, Paul Schrader and Martin Scorsese, who are great directors, of course, and I would listen to them talk about their experience in the Hollywood industry, and they had all kinds of problems. I just thought to myself, like, if they have these kinds of problems, I can't even imagine the kinds of problems I would have. <laughs> so one of the big differences is the style of working, and it has to do with power. And not that I'm against power or that I don't have power, because I do have power, but what I'm really sort of talking about is the, is the way in which the director is situated. In, 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 the, in the Hollywood industry, there's a whole bunch of other people that control the money that you have to sort of refer to and that have an opinion, whereas in the European model, the director really is the center of the vision uh, for the film. And this was the way that I was used to working, and I couldn't imagine having to then transpose that into a situation in which other people would have a say over, yes. over my work. Well, so now when the eyes of the world for the first time are on you after Women of After Women on the Verge, your next movie, it's sort of established something that has 
has happened ever since, which is there's always a little controversy yes. <laughs> around you, right? And it so was. 1988, just a year later, tie me up, tie me down. In this country, we have this rating system. And at the time, there was a rating called X. And your movie was given that. People were calling it pornographic. There were a few other movies at the time that were also stirring this up. I guess I just wonder what you made of all of the controversy around that one, which probably in a way was good for the movie, but also maybe frustrating. It was actually a situation that really bothered me, but I have to recognize that Miramax, who was distributing the film, was actually kind of happy about mm -hmm. all the... And, of course, I had no other thing that I could do other than to defend the director's freedom of expression, mm -hmm. something that is, again, a given in Europe, but that I really had to fight for here. Yes. And so the real tragedy is that when the critics, the people never really talked about the film, they just talked about the controversy with the MPAA, especially what was referred to as a lovemaking scene mm -hmm. uh, in the film. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I, I'm sure that you know because you, it seems to me that you know everything. <laughs> that um, with Miramax, we sued the, the, the MPAA to the court of New York, yeah. and uh, we won. Yes. I mean, there was, all, and at that moment, two movies, two other movies, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, of Joe McNaughton, and uh, one of Philip Kaufman. Henry and June. Henry and June. Yeah. Henry and June. And they came uh, with us, and with the three of them, uh, uh, got that something that, uh, that it was obvious, no one of these three movies were pornographic. They were explicit in some terms, but it was necessary to create a new rating. And then it was a moment. I think this is, is like part of the history <laughs> um, that the, then the court um, obliged the MBAA to create a new rating. And that was how was born the, 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 the NC-17. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what I wondered, I think that you know, some people say the the Academy Awards. They they say that they put their Oscar as the as a doorstop. They're dismissive of. I it. don't believe that. Yes, I don't either. But I I think I want. That's what I want to ask because it seems that, in a way, the Academy Awards helped to elevate people's appreciation of your films and the and the profile of them. I just want to mention to people. These are the ones that were not even nominated, but were submitted by Spain. Women on the Verge, High Heels in 91, in 95, The Flower of My Secret, in 06, Volver, which made the shortlist, in 2016, Julieta, this year, Pain and Glory. But the two that the Academy really, really embraced were All About My Mother and then, again, uh, just talk to, her. talk to her three years later. So can you talk about what it's like to be chosen to represent your country, to have your films seen now way outside of Spain, all around the world, and particularly with those two movies, which I love, just how how that impacted the audience that they had. You know, I was uh, in, in, in one hand, uh, because in All About My Mother, uh, it was the Spanish entry. Talk to her was not. Yes. And now, for example, with Pain and Glory, I feel a kind of pression a huge responsibility because now I'm not representing myself, which is what I want in general. In, um, but I represent my country. And then um, uh, if, I, if I really want to be and to get that nomination, now I realize that it's not for me. It's more for my country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's kind of not weird, but it's, it's, there is, I feel a kind of pression with that. And it's true that um, that after these two Oscars, uh, we thought about my mother and talked to her, absolutely elevated my situation, not only in my country, 
Yeah, more generally, not just in Spain, just generally the world of filmmaking. Yes. I was elevated for everyone. And we should just say that it wasn't only in the foreign language categories because with Talk to Her, you were nominated for Best Director, Best Screenplay, something that with where you won for screenplay, that had almost never happened for a non-English language movie. Amazing. No, it was only the second time that the Academy... Uh, give an Oscar for one script that is not in English. Uh, the first the first time it was with a man and a woman. Oh yeah. By Col Deluge. Yeah. And the second time it was with me. Amazing. So I really I really appreciate that because and gave me a lot of I don't I mean usually the the, the awards are very important for the moment, mm -hmm. but in this case. You know, my, my vocation, my early vocation, it was just to write. Mm -hmm. I got the impression of the that I that I was less writer than cinematographer, I mean than than filmmaker. And just the fact that uh, in Hollywood uh, they gave me this incredible, I mean, prestige Oscar. And for the second time, I mean only only two Oscars in other languages gave me a kind of confidence, like like thinking, I'm a writer, I'm a real writer. Mm -hmm, <laughs> because, mm -hmm. um, and this is what I am. I mean, of, of course, I I write for the cinema, and this is because then, you know, the script is never finished till the moment that you don't finish the movie. But um, it was really very important for me. I want to ask you, there's obviously actors love working with you and the the fact that you have worked so many times with so many of them but especially we mentioned Antonio Banderas we mentioned Carmen Mora there's also of course Penelope Cruz who goes for decades right through Pain and Glory why do you think you get along so well with actors and they and they like working with you so much is it the fact i mean especially women i want to ask you about because people seem to feel that you get really great performances out of women. Not that you don't get them out of men also, but just specifically women. Why do you think you have that kind of uh, ability? Yeah, yeah. I, no, it's true that I wrote many more female characters mm -hmm. than male characters. And, uh, and also, I, I enjoy much more to write scripts with female characters. I mean, in this case, Pen and Glory, Pen and Glory is a male character. But you know, when, I, when I write about a male character, I, it's more, it's more, it's more, more pessimistic, more dark, yeah. less fun. Why do you more think more somber? That is? I don't know why. I don't know why. I'm perhaps because I'm a man, and you know, the, the, this is the the idea of I, if I that I have of the the same gender uh, characters. But it's true that I'm. I mean, for me, and also it's a way of thinking. I think at least the, the women that I that I met in my life. And in above all in my childhood, they were very fighter women. They were all, almost omnipotent, mm -hmm. very strong characters that they, in a very bad period in Spain, that que yo creo que... So I think that the mothers uh, and women in general in the 1950s, I really think they were the ones that allowed Spain to even su survive the war. Yes. So I grew up really surrounded by women in the patios of the houses. And my perception of them was that they were stronger than the men, funner than the men, less prejudiced than the men, and in general more capable of just sort of moving forward in life. And maybe in a kind of naive way, the, the male characters for me or the male persons for me represented authority. And I couldn't identify with that figure. Well, it's interesting that you've... I, I once interviewed you before it was 
eight years ago in New York here, and you said something that I want to quote back to you because I, I wonder if you can talk more about it. You said, quote, in Spain, we have many more wonderful actresses than actors, and it's a question of what was supposed to be a man in a Latin country. I mean, men are supposed to not be so expressive as women, even now. And you said that this went back to Lorca in the 20s, that it was a country it's, of actresses. It's true. It's true. It's true. I mean, Lorca said that in the 20s, yeah. that Spain, it was a country of good actresses. Yeah. You know, the Latin lover or the Latin male character yeah. is a cliche. But it's true that it's less expressive and more prejudiced than women. This is something that I, I mean, I, I see in my country. So, esto hace también... I mean, I think in general men are sort of less rigid, I mean, more rigid yeah. uh, and less flexible. But I think in Spain it has, through the years, there has been a transformation, there has been a change. The Latin lover figure has seen a transformation almost everywhere in the world except Italy. I think you still have the Latin lover in Italy. In Italy, the Latin lover is exactly like that, you know. Like, like the cliché you imagine, they are like that. <laughs> Yeah, but in Spain, really almost even taken by the feminist wave, yes. men have had to change. And is Penelope sort of the ideal woman in your mind? It seems like, in a way, she might be. Yes, you know everything. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, since the very beginning, when uh, when we started working, it was 1997, I think. She was very, like, 20 years old. I always imagined her as a mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know why, uh, physically and uh, even when she was very young, I, I always thought that, that she was like the perfect image of a mother mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And also I really love her physically. Yeah. And you know, in Spain, we don't have, like in Italy, the tradition of the mother, the, the representation of mothers in cinema. They used to be like fat uh, women, not very tall. I mean, mujeres... Women who, because they were mothers, were undesirable. So I think thinking of Penelope and kind of in relationship to Italian neorealism, where women in that case were casalinghe mothers and, and house and housewives, but they were sexy. You, you had Sofia Loren, you had Anna Magnani. And so that transposed onto Penelope has now also changed that archetype in Spanish yes. cinema as well. Well, I have only two more for you, if that's okay. The the second to last one is this. I think it's unmistakable that there are themes that run from through all of your work, almost all of it. Maybe there's exceptions here or there, but people pick up on the fact that a lot of people have pseudonyms and posing as somebody else. There's people with just different things, but the biggest one, it seems like, is identity. And that can be gender, that can be trans gender, which is something mm -hmm. that's in a lot of your stuff. You said that growing up that you knew a lot of trans people, that they were sort of heroes to you because of the fact that they were so liberated to that extent. And we've seen that in Dark Habits and Matador and The Skin I Live In and on and on. So I just want to ask as the as the second to last one, just why do you think that is it that identity does come up so often in the films? So I think identity is actually equivalent to the soul in human beings. I think it's the most important thing that each human being has. And I think anything that plays in favor of identity is necessary. And I think the last 30 years have actually played in favor to there being an evolution in that no, sense. He, he, and so when I talk about sort of the, the heroism in, in the trans figures, I'm really speaking of the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. when really to claim your identity in that way at that time really implicated a lot of courage mm -hmm. and a lot of sense of yourself, but then also the willingness to take on legal and other kinds of social mm -hmm. humiliation. 
For example, one of the things that if you wanted to change your identity le legally, you actually had to present yourself in front of a judge and you were actually literally sort of made to go naked in front of a forensic doctor uh, who had to then identify what your genitalia was like. And that's, of course, a very humiliating situation. So, and of course, now we see a, a huge difference because now all that you need to do, all you, that you need to feel is in your mind and in your soul that you are this gender that you claim to be and that's and you're recognized for that and even as as far as young kids uh, parents will have to recognize that and, and doctors might even suggest that you begin the transition process well the last question is just here we are with your 21st film i believe pain and glory which you're someone who said you're never going to write an autobiography but this might be <laughs> the the closest thing it feels like to it because now correct me if any of this is wrong but there are some things that are absolutely clearly not you. You've said didn't do heroin. There was nobody when you were nine years old who you were, uh, no older artist or whatever who was there that for, that you kind of pined after. But we see here Antonio's playing a guy with a certain distinctive hairstyle. He's a filmmaker. He uh, yes, 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 lives right. in a place that looks <laughs> a lot like yours, apparently. So, and and then again, you're back with two of the people that you've probably worked with as much as anybody, Antonio and Penelope. So just what does this movie symbolize to you? Is it your story? Yeah, I mean, it came, you cannot take it literally. Uh, of course, I, uh, I'm represented in the whole movie, but it doesn't mean that I lived everything that Antonio lived. Uh, I mean, for example, I, I didn't live in a cave, but I knew when I was writing, and I know what it means for a kid to live in a precarious way and to move up from the place that I was born to another place, which is strange. Almost, I mean, the more essential things of every sequence or block of sequences, I know what I'm talking about. Some of them, I live it, I lived it in, in first person. Some of them, they belong to the memories of my sisters, of my brother, of some fellow that I, that I have. But it's true, I mean, it's... Um, but it's always mixed of of fiction. I mean, you cannot. I I didn't have the the feeling of making straight away my autobiography because it is necessary. Yes, yes, to become a movie, it is necessary that you mix it with something else. And of course, I mean, there are things that I didn't do that Antonio does in the movie. But uh, your back seems to be in better shape than his. <laughs> I am in much better shape. Yes, than yes, <laughs> yes. I also had, you know, surgery in my back. Oh. I also suffer from migraine, from mm -hmm. migraine. But uh, no, the, the Antonio's character is much worse than <laughs> I am. Uh, but also, I mean, I mean, the main thing, like, I mean, this kind of nost nostalgia that he has of of not make a new movie. This is this is something that I felt. Not so much like him, but I mean, after the surgery of, the, of my back, I was nine, like nine months very, with a lot of pains and a, a lot of physical difficulties. And I got that fear at that moment. It, it was only at that moment I could write and I was thinking always uh, to make a new movie, but I was afraid that physically I could not do it because I was, I mean, I was in bad state to do that. And as Antonio said, I have to make a movie, something very physical. So it is true. I mean, it's my life. I'm completely represented. But uh, the only thing is that you shouldn't take it, I mean, literarily. <laughs> but uh, yes, I am, that, I am that guy. 
Great. Well, thank you so much. It's great to speak with yeah, you. I it, it seems that you. It seems to me that you know everything about me. <laughs> <laughs> everything no. that you said. I mean, you you made an incredible <laughs> or researches or because I remember having uh, with you a lot of conversation. Well, it's, <laughs> I I love your love your films and it's fun to. There's always more to to discover. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.